Hello everyone, I'm Christiane Amanpour in London and welcome to the Amanpour Hour. In the next 60 minutes, we'll take you around the world to ask the tough questions, tackle the big problems and let history be our guide as well. Here's where we're headed this week. I am certain that the United States of America will not betray us. Stay the cause, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says he's counting on Congress to keep funding Ukraine and our battle for democracy. Ukrainians have been able to inflict heavy losses uh, on the Russian forces. Then, as tough as it gets, Biden's top climate advisor John Kerry on his high-stakes deal-making at COP28, and why even a Trump comeback couldn't turn back the clock. Nobody can stop this now. The economies of the world have made this decision. Also ahead, from my archive, a cautionary tale from Gaza after the 2009 war. Why a summer camp there was more boot camp for the children I met. Then, Adam Driver plays Enzo Ferrari, who bet it all on an epic car race across Italy. He tells me movie making is all about lasting moments. It's a document that's going to last forever. And finally, Marina Abramovich puts her body and her life on the line for her art. Marina, you could have been killed. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. And what a difference this year has made for Ukraine. Just last December, President Volodymyr Zelensky was warmly received in a rare joint session of Congress. Our two nations are allies in this battle. And next year will be a turning point. I know it, the point when Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom, the freedom of people who stand for their values. But if this year has been a turning point, it is turning in the wrong direction. Here's President Zelensky at a press conference in Kyiv, sounding less than confident about continued American support. Talking about financial aid, we are working very hard on this, and I am certain that the United States of America will not betray us, and that on which we agreed in the United States will be fulfilled completely. Why the change? Republican resistance to funding Ukraine has hardened from no blank checks to no checks at all. Congress has adjourned without passing critically needed funding for this battle for democracy. And in Europe, Hungary's Viktor Orban blocked $50 billion in EU aid. Now, military planners are considering the worst case scenario, that Ukraine, without Western aid, loses to Russia, perhaps even by this summer. My guest, Jens Stoltenberg, wrestles with all of this as NATO's Secretary General. And he tells me that support for Ukraine is, in fact, a vital investment for the United States in the face of Putin's direct threat to the democratic world. Secretary General, welcome to the program. Did you expect that by the end of this year, things would be so dire and maybe Putin would be proved right to have said that he can wait out the West? I'm always very careful predicting about uh, wars because wars are by nature unpredictable and uh, most experts uh, were very wrong at the beginning of the war because uh, then uh, uh, we feared and many experts believed that uh, Russia would take control over Kiev within uh, days and that Ukraine would collapse uh, within weeks. That didn't happen. The Ukrainians uh, 
uh, has been able to push back uh, the Russian invaders in the north, uh, in the east and in the uh, south. Uh, but of course, now uh, we see that the front lines have not changed in any significant way over the last year. And therefore, it's even more important that we very clearly uh, continue to provide support to Ukraine because uh, uh, they need our support to be able to uh, prevail as a sovereign independent nation in Europe. So what is your reaction then to the U.S. Congress, you know, not voting on this package, to the EU not voting on this package, and to, you know, American policy, anyway, Western policymakers saying that Ukraine's going to lose if it doesn't get this aid. Do you share that concern that it will lose if it doesn't get the critical aid that it needs very soon? Of course, it would have been much better if uh, the US uh, Congress uh, could have decided on a new uh, package or a new allocation of money to, uh, to Ukraine uh, before Christmas. Uh, at the same time, I, I continue to count on uh, the United States and the US Congress to uh, agree uh, a substantial um, package for uh, Ukraine. Uh, because uh, this is ch not charity. This is not only something we do to uh, support Ukraine. We do it because it is an investment in our own security. Um, and uh, uh, we have to remember that if President Putin wins, it's not only a tragedy for the Ukrainians, it's also dangerous for us. We become more vulnerable because then the message to President Putin is that when he uses military force, he gets what he wants. And this is also very closely watched uh, in Beijing. Uh, uh, so this is in our security interest, in the security interest of the United States, uh, to invest uh, in uh, uh, the defense of Ukraine. So to that point, let me play something that President Zelensky said while he was, you know, trying to trying to persuade the West that they needed the aid. He 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 sort of said what you said. If you know, if if Ukraine loses, who knows what's going to happen next? If Russia will kill all of us, they will attack NATO countries, and you will send your, your sons and daughters. And it will be, I'm sorry, but the price will be higher. So, and you said last week, and let me get this straight, if Putin wins in Ukraine, there is a real risk that his aggression will not end there. And, you know, President Biden has said something similar. P Putin says that's nonsense. But what do you say to, you know, to this fear that it, won't stop in Ukraine. We don't see any imminent threat against any NATO uh, allied uh, country. Uh, but what we see is that if uh, Russia and President Putin wins in Ukraine, uh, then, of course, uh, we see a pattern. We have forces in Moldova, in Moldova they invaded uh, uh, Georgia. We see the brutality of the Russian forces in Syria. And then they annexed Crimea in 2014. They went into Eastern Donbass in 2014. And then if they then are able also to take the rest of Ukraine, then of course the lesson for them is that they can violate international law, they can use military force, they can invade neighbors, and they uh, get what they want. Uh, and that's a very dangerous lesson. I've asked you many times, and I've asked many other leaders many times in the two years of this war, you know, why hasn't more that's been promised got to Ukraine in the right time, when it could have actually used it, when it could have actually taken advantage of its strength on the, on the ground? And there's a major new uh, article in Time magazine that is now asking the very same question. In fact, saying that President Biden's and the Biden administration's slow yes... Uh, and NATO's slow yes to Ukrainian requests for weapons systems, and especially ammunition, 
is, has, has led to this point where Russia has been able to capitalize and to dig in and, and this state of attrition right now? They invaded, uh, they, they, they used military force against a neighbor which have in no way uh, been a threat to them. We can always discuss uh, um, if, if it was possible to do even more from our side earlier in providing support to, uh, to Ukraine. Uh, but what is clear is that the United States and uh, NATO allies have provided unprecedented uh, support to Ukraine. Uh, in the beginning with yes, light uh, weapons like the anti-tank weapons, the javelins and, and, uh, and all the types of anti-tank weapons that made a huge difference the first weeks. Uh, then with heavy artillery, uh, then with advanced air defense systems, uh, and uh, now also with cruise uh, missiles, long-range cruise missiles. And uh, we have started the training of F-16 pilots and F-16 planes will soon be delivered. So this is the reason why actually the Ukrainians have achieved a lot. They have been able to liberate 50% of the territory yeah, yeah. that uh, the Russians occupied at the beginning of the war. But nothing, nothing in the last year. And, and I guess my question is, what is your, what is your plan B? Well, the plan is to continue to support Ukraine uh, because we know that the only way to end this war um, uh, in a way that ensures that Ukraine prevails is that we uh, convince President Putin that he will not win on the battlefield. And the only way of uh, convincing him uh, is to ensure that uh, Ukraine has the weapons, has the ammunition, has the forces they need uh, to continue to push back uh, Russian forces. And yes, you're, you are right that the, 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 the front lines have not changed significantly over the last year, but, you, but Ukrainians have been able to inflict heavy losses uh, on the Russian forces. So Russia is paying a price on the battlefield uh, and they have been able to take control over parts of the, uh, the Black Sea and push back the, uh, the Black Sea uh, Russian uh, Navy. So they are now yep. able to export uh, goods and grain uh, out of uh, uh, Sevastopol uh, and out of Ukraine. So next year is going to be really challenging then. Jens Stoltenberg, thank you so much for joining us. So that stern warning from Europe to the United States. Coming up next on the program, Biden's top eco-warrior John Kerry reveals the high-stakes deal-making at COP28 and tells me why not even a second Trump presidency could stop climate action now. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. 
if you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden's top climate envoy, John Kerry, says only greed can now get in the way of combating climate change. Kerry was right at the center of the high-stakes deal-making at COP28 in Dubai, where remarkably all 195 nations agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. Earlier this week, he and I talked about age, activism, and how hard it was to get to that agreement. Secretary Kerry, welcome back to the program. Happy to be back. There was a lot written about how you were able to leverage, if that's the right way, your contacts with the Saudi, with the, with the UAE, with the uh, Chinese official et al. Tell me just what it was like in terms of personal negotiation, getting them to sign on the dotted line. Well, it's really tough. I mean, this is as tough as any multilateral negotiation gets. When you have economic interests and different capacities, different capabilities, different amounts of money, different cultures, different uh, economies, and you bring them all together in a multilateral forum, I think people who expect them to all of a sudden, you know, terminate what they're doing are, are just not operating on the reality of how multilateral governance it works. It's the hardest kind of all. And what happened in Dubai is that 195 countries actually came to a consensus. Any one of them could have blocked. Any one country could have walked away and said, no, we're not doing this. They didn't. They gathered together and said, time for a transition away from fossil fuels with acceleration in the 2020s, commensurate with net zero 2050, and in keeping with the Paris Agreement, which means keeping 1.5 degrees alive. If there's one now, thing that worries you, what today. is it? Well, what worries me now is greed and, and procrastination and business as usual and people who just aren't going to step up. If you're the envoy for President Biden, what happens if Biden doesn't get elected and the climate, you know, I don't even know what to call him, the climate agreement puller out of <laughs> Donald Trump, yeah. which he did, in, you know, after 2015, comes back? What yeah, happens but let me then? tell you something. Let me tell you, even while Donald Trump was president of the United States and he pulled out of the Paris Agreement, 37 governors, Republican and Democrat alike in the states of America, all yeah. continued to apply the Paris Agreement. Even while Donald Trump was out of the agreement, 75% of the new electricity in the United States that came online came from renewables. Now, he probably didn't know it or he tried to stop it. But the bottom line is, he now, nobody can stop this now. The economies of the world have made this decision. I think no one politician anywhere in the world can undo the direction the world is now moving And particularly in. the young people who are really there for it and won't allow it to go and die Correct. a quiet death. Correct. Can I talk about values and you as a public servant? Um, it's known that you really shot to, I guess, public service by first going to Vietnam when you were very young as a young naval commander, and then coming back once you had seen what happened there and what you were faced with and speaking very bravely to the Fulbright committee. What you, you saw what happened and you came out against the war. I did. How did a young man decide to go against his country's policy at that time? And how did it affect and shape you? Well, because I saw it firsthand. And I, I, 
saw what was happening there. And it was very different from what we were being told by our leaders. It was not about communism and it wasn't about a domino theory. It was a civil war. Uh, it was a war which the United States became more and more involved in out of pride and out of ideology, but not out of practical assessment of what was happening on the ground. Uh, this was a failure of concept and of those who were supposed to lead uh, at the highest levels. And um, it, it just cost America enormously. What's significant is I had the privilege of going back there uh, a few weeks ago with President Biden uh, and with a great friend of mine who was a 19-year-old sergeant in the Marines uh, named Tom Vallely, who's put a lifetime into helping create the Fulbright University in Vietnam, a full-fledged uh, you know, academic freedom university in Vietnam. But the point I'd make is that President Biden sort of completed the circle. John McCain and I worked on this together for years. Uh, George H.W. Bush took steps to lift the embargo. Uh, Bill Clinton, as president, took steps to normalize relationship. But this final moment was President Biden announcing with the president of Vietnam a comprehensive strategic relationship between Vietnam and the United States. What an amazing circle. I mean, what an amazing journey. Who would have believed that in 1968 or 9? And, and that's the evolution of our policy. And I think uh, it really does give it meaning and value beyond uh, the tragedy of the war itself. You just celebrated your 80th birthday, still going strong. <laughs> what line can you draw from that, from the young man who came back and told his country that this war is the wrong war, to today, to what you will tell your grandchildren about what's been achieved after this COP28? What will you tell them about their future? Well, that we can make a difference, that all of us be being citizens and being active and being engaged. We have that freedom, that power to make a, a difference. The struggle for us a little bit now in the United States and elsewhere is to make sure that the truth is on the table, that we are ratifying truth, not disinformation, not bad ideology. And I think that, um, uh, you know, in so many ways, uh, the journey we traveled, I wrote the, 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 the title of my autobiography after I left as secretary is Every Day is Extra. That comes from a saying that many of the guys on my crew and many of the people I knew there felt that responsibility because we survived and we came back. And so you treat every day as extra. And when you say to me, you know, I'm 80 years old, I mean, I don't think about age. Honestly, I don't. Uh, the other day I, I said to my friends when we were gathered, I said, you know, at 80, I can do everything I used to do when I was 50, but I don't remember what it is. <laughs> anyway, On it's that fun. note. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> that's not true, by the way. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> anyway. So it must really tick you off, all this stuff about Biden and his age. It does. I think it's sort of an ageism. He's done a brilliant job, I think, as president. He's strengthened NATO. He's been able to galvanize people around critical values that are at stake in Ukraine, critical values. I don't know what has happened to a lot of people who back away from that now, because in the cost of uh, not persevering, would be just extraordinary for the world. And I think he knows how the Congress works, he knows America, and he also knows how the world works. And that's what you need today. Secretary Kerry, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And up next on the show, the drive to survive. I ask Hollywood star Adam Driver about his new role playing Enzo Ferrari, who bet the house on an epic race across Italy.
Welcome back. Martin Scorsese says he's probably the best actor of his generation. And now Adam Driver is starring alongside Penelope Cruz in Michael Mann's biopic, Ferrari, which opens on Christmas Day. Here's a clip. Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space. At the same moment in time. When so? Driver plays Enzo Ferrari, the racing entrepreneur, as he reckons with the death of his son and tries to save his company from ruin. I asked Driver about the raw emotion at the heart of this new movie and if his time in the Marines made him a better actor. Adam Driver, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to play a little clip. This is not on the race course. It's actually uh, interaction between you and Penelope Cruz, who plays your wife, Laura, and she is now going at you over the death of your son. You were supposed to save him. You blame me for his death? Yes. Yes, because you promised me he wouldn't die. Everything. I did everything. Table showing what calories he could eat, what went in, what came out. I graphed the degrees of albuminuria, the degrees of azotemia, diuresis. I know more about nephritis and dystrophy than cars. Yes, I blame you, I blame you, because you let him die. The father deluded himself. The great engineer. I will restore my son to health. Swiss doctors, Italian doctors, bull I could not. I did not. It's so raw and it's so dramatic. And, and, and to see him as the, you know, the, the race car expert and then getting into this very personal situation, half the story or maybe the most of the film is about his personal relationship with his wife, who's his business partner, with his lover, who's the, the mother of his next son. It's very, very personal. I probably should say just also hedge people's expectations that it very easily could have been a movie with a loose plot that's an excuse to look at beautiful Ferraris driving at a beautiful time, uh, you know, in, in the world. You know, the, the late 50s in, in Italy is, is beautiful. The costumes are beautiful. But Michael's films are character driven. He's, he is committed and obsessed with uh, having three-dimensional characters. So hopefully by the time something does happen that you actually care, which seems to be uh, is honestly hard to find in a lot of scripts. This is a character-driven movie first where uh, the spectacle is... is uh, I'm, I'm avoiding all driving metaphors, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's easy to say it takes a back seat uh, uh, to, uh, to what his, his character uh, study is. And... Um, uh, and in a way, they they all they they uh, uh, communicate with each other. You know, it, it, who who cares if anyone crashes if you don't really can are, are don't care about the people. I want to ask you because I always get surprised when I think that you, as a younger man, joined the Marines, and I wonder whether that gives you the intensity, the discipline, the connection with, with raw reality that you were able to bring with you to Hollywood and, and this profession? I, I look at a film set no different than I did a, a gun team. I, obviously, the, the stakes are life and death in, a, in the Marine Corps, whereas in the civilian world or acting, you're pretending that they're, they're life and death. 
but the the way the process of working on it is 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 almost the exact same. You know, it's a group of people trying to accomplish a mission that's bigger than any one person. You know, the the crossover between the military and acting, especially as a group of people you know, doing this thing that's bigger than any one person really made sense to me. And and so I don't take it for granted. I wonder how this fame um, affects you because it can affect people in very deep and, and difficult ways. Well, it, it, as I kind of get older, I adjust to it. So in, in a way, biology has taken care of some of it, you know, and I, I try to live my life where I, you know, I, I have kids, I have a wife, I have, a, you know, a, a family that you want to try to protect, you know, it's... Uh, I, I see the artifice and how you can get caught up in it. Uh, maybe because I was exposed to this later on in life, uh, I just have a different perspective of it. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. To, to me, I, I really think it's about preserving your... Uh, your it's kind of like I, I don't really want to hear from actors. Uh, I wouldn't trust a lot of actors on real estate advice, <laughs> let alone... Uh, uh, um, uh, their opinions on it, you know, so I, I try to, you know, try to keep it to the things we're working on and, and not take away from, uh, not mess up this thing by saying something uh, uh, stupid. But uh, I, I, I also just, it's just not, it's not, uh, it's not interesting. It, it, it kind of takes away from your job, which is to be a spy and look at other people. And when they're looking at you, it's, a, it's an adjustment. It's a weird way to be in the world. I love that, to be a spy and look at people. That's very cool. Adam Driver, thank you very much indeed. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. And when we come back, why summer camp was more like boot camp for these children growing up in war-torn Gaza. From my archive, next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. A persistent fear in this Gaza war is that the massive death toll and the destruction will only create a new generation of enemies for Israel. That's why the elders, a highly respected group of former world leaders working for human rights and peace, sent an open letter to President Biden saying, quote, destroying Gaza and killing civilians are not making Israelis safe. These actions will breed more terrorism across the region and beyond. Frankly, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the same. Beware strategic defeat. In 2009, after a different Gaza war, I traveled there and to other Muslim countries torn by fighting for my report that I called Generation Islam. What I saw there in Gaza shows us that the elders' warning is not fear-mongering or prophecy. It is simply the voice of experience. The hot summer sun beats down on five-year-old Hamza Marouf. He and his family are now living in complete squalor. <laughs> he sits in the rubble of his bombed-out home playing with a broken mirror. 
It's all he has. The preschool where we first met Hamza is closed for the summer. With little to do, Hamza can only dream of a place to play. I have no camp and no one brings me toys. How am I supposed to get them on my own? My father doesn't work. I sit at home alone. Even if he could go to camp, summer in Gaza is a long way from campfires and canoe rides. The Hamas government runs religious and recreational camps for more than 100,000 children. The boys participating in this one call it Boy Scouts, but it's more like boot camp. 12-year-old Mohammed is honing his skills. Without Boy Scouts, he says, there wouldn't be much to do. We'd be bored, not having fun at all, and hate our lives. We'd be sitting at home, reading the Quran. Mohammed and many of the other boys here lost friends during the war. This may be a welcome release for him, but even at this young age, he's absorbing a message. We come to the camp to have fun and train for Boy Scouts so we can build up our bodies, have power, so we'll be able to fight the Israelis. Emad, the camp leader, insists that they're not teaching violence. But in war-torn Gaza, they are teaching self-defense. We try to change their perspective from one that is vicious or war-related to one that encourages them to be kids, to play. When they're older, he says, they can then join the fight for a Palestinian homeland. After you grow up, you can be recruited to liberate the land. When we asked the boys what they wanted to be when they grow up, not surprisingly, they all said the same thing. I want to be a defender of the country. I want to be a policeman and defend the country. Someone who is disciplined and a defender of my country. For years, Hamas has openly promoted a culture of violent resistance, presenting masked gunmen and suicide bombers as heroes. I asked Hamas political leader Ahmed Youssef why their message to kids is so militant. When you have the, uh, the Israeli um, belligerent approach all the time, they see all the time the F-16, Apache, and the tanks, and what do you expect the people to do, Yadi? We expected that the world will help the Palestinians to achieve their dreams of having a free, independent state. Yani. Until we achieve that, the struggle will continue. Nobody will surrender. Angry and isolated, these are the young Muslims whom White House advisor Ibu Patel is worried about. What does it mean to be alienated in places like Gaza or Afghanistan, where there's quite a lot to be alienated about if you're young and Muslim? Not only do you not belong, but you will never belong to this thing called the human community. You will never have the opportunity to live a full life of dignity. And so it's not surprising to me that some of these young people would be receptive to the message of creating an alternative community, a destructive community. Everyone. Hey. 
John Ging directs the United Nations relief effort and runs its schools here. He's launched his own war against extremism with a competing summer games program to keep kids off the streets and out of the hands of the militants. The overwhelming vast majority of the people here are decent civilized people with good values. There's a battle going on here for the hearts and minds of the people. And back then, one Palestinian elder told me, if the Israelis want peace with us and end the occupation, we will wave an olive branch. If they do not, we will wave the Koran and a gun. When we come back, why the godmother of performance art is willing to put her life on the line to leave a lasting memory. This was a piece that I realized that I really could be killed. Welcome back. Marina Abramovich is a fearless pioneer of performance art. Instead of canvas or clay, this Serbian artist uses her body in ways that range from uncomfortable to downright dangerous. And at 77, she remains an unstoppable leader in the field. Here in London, the Royal Academy is hosting the definitive retrospective of her 50-year career. And I met her there to find out what makes her put her whole self on the line for art. Marina Abramovich, welcome to the program. One of your exhibitions, which is here now, is a table of 72 objects that you say, do what you will with these objects. I am the tool, do whatever you want to me. Tell me how that played out, because it turned out pretty violent at one point. But you know, I was 23 years old. It was six hours. The first one, two hours, not really happened. Then they cut my, they give me rolls. Then they cut my, my, my shirt. Then they put the pins in the rose into my body. Then they cut a sealer scarf and they suck my blood on my neck. Then they, then they you know, carry me around. There was so much, the, the violence. Very interesting thing happened. Women didn't do anything. Women told men what to do. And women took, when I was crying, they would take handkerchief and, and wash my face from the tears. How do you interpret that? I don't. I have no question. I'm shocked. This was a piece that I realized that I really could be killed. And somebody did point a loaded gun at you. Yes. And, they, and then another person came and took the gun, threw out to the window. It was so much violence. But at way. what point do the guards have a responsibility? Marina, you could have been killed. I know. Somebody could have not just nicked your, sh your, your neck, they could have got your jugular. But now we talk about performance. When you go into state of performance, you're not you. You're, you know, you're not little Marina who can start thinking what all hell can happen. You're super Marina. You're the higher form of yourself. And then everything's possible. What are you saying here, Marina? This is quite... I, I made the skeleton exactly my size. And by lying, I'm lying and skeleton is breathing. I just want to know, you know, how that feel, this transition. Sufi said, life is a dream and that is waking up. I just want to know that moment, because the moment that I want to die is without fear, without anger, and, uh, and consciously. Three things. And that's something that, that I, you need to train during the life. It doesn't so, come just like that. Death is a huge part of your life and your work. Yeah. You're always thinking about death. All the time. So, here, so what, how do you stay happy and positive? I have, I'm hilarious. 
in real life. <laughs> I, I'm honestly ready to stand up comedy. I'm so much, I need to love and because work is so heavy. So we're sitting in, in this room, which is very important because it has your, almost your signature piece uh, of, of the, 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 the Chinese, the Great Wall in China. And it was designed for you and your lover, Ule, to walk from each end. That's a total of 5,000 plus kilometers. You walked about 2,000 each. each. Exactly. It took you, what, three months or so to walk. What were you meant to do when you met and what did you actually do? We had the idea at that time in the desert, let's walk right to the wall of China. In eight years, we was writing to Chinese government letters. In eight years, we were getting very friendly answers, but we didn't move anywhere. The idea was to walk this Chinese wall, and we meet in the middle, and we married. Finally, after eight years, we got permission to walk the Great of China. But in that time, our relation was ending. But as we never give up anything, we say, okay, now we're going to walk. Instead of marrying, we're going to say goodbye. And one of our friends, Americans, said to us, why you just didn't make phone call? He missed the whole point. And then a few years later, you went back to a, a, an amazing performance that, that went viral around the world. The artist is present. It first showed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, I think. And what happened? Because something like 1,500 people came and sat next to you and tried to stare you out. But on one occasion, your former lover came. You know, I never break the rules. I am like I'm a soldier. I'm a warrior. I do things absolutely as I decide. This was the only time I broke the rule. Because in the front of me, it was a man I love so much. And it was in front of me, somebody, it was not the public. It was life itself. So I put my hand in the, on the table and touch him and, and just cry. I, it, was, it was one of these moments that it was so in, 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 intense. A really extraordinary woman. And when we come back, more questions and answers. Ask Amanpour is next. Welcome back. And this is where I take your questions about the events today that shape tomorrow. Let's find out what's on your mind this week. Hi, my name is William Obo. I'm a 15-year-old boy living in Edmonton, Alberta. And my question is, what is the best path to achieve and revive the peace process in the Middle East? So that's an excellent question, William. And I'll tell you, I am going to put this on Rabbi Sharon Browse, author of The Amen Effect, who I interviewed recently, who told me that it's really about hearing the story of the other. We're living in a moment of false binaries, as if people need to make a choice to be, you're either with Israel or you're with the Palestinians, when in reality, the only future is a shared future. There are millions of people who live in that land who are not leaving, who literally have nowhere else to go, and they have to find a way to live with one another. So these false binaries are only sending us further and further away from the work that ultimately must be done, which is the work of shared grief, the work of building some kind of shared narrative. And so the, the tools that I'm most invested in right now, and the reason actually that I called the book The Amen Effect, is because we have ancient mechanisms for teaching us how to lean into the discomfort of conversations that don't feel natural to us, where we feel like 
like we might even be losing something of our own victimhood if we hear someone else's pain. But in fact, it's only when we hear one another's pain and when we lift up and affirm each other's humanity that we can collectively walk toward a shared liberation with one another. And I hope we can all agree and share the feeling that what she just said was really profound and really vital without listening to the other, without hearing the other's pain as a very first step. There is no avenue, there's no room to even start a peace process. That's all we have time for right now. If you want to ask me a question, email askamanpour at cnn.com. And remember to tell us your name and where you're from. Don't forget, you can find all our shows online as podcasts at cnn.com slash podcast and on all other major platforms. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.